City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. We're on the air. I was just getting preparing myself, getting ready here. They uh, signal that actually I'm actually on the air. So here we are, and um, we have arrived. It is it is city limits, and it's uh, the the second Wednesday of the month. Today we do energy and related type issues. And today we're going to talk about uh, about the energy of uh, not getting, or perhaps lack of energy, and getting rid of toxic dumps and toxic waste because. Uh, we've talked for years and years to Helen Vandenberg about the telemarine toxic waste dump, but to date it's still there and all the things or most of the things the community want to happen haven't happened and it just drags on. But recently a group's formed in the western suburbs or the northwestern suburbs to fight toxic waste in those areas. We're going to talk to Helen about that in about five minutes or so. And the second half of the program, we're going to talk to Dave Sweeney. He'll be in a cab on his way to the airport, so it might be interesting to <laughs> see how we go. Um, he can report but, uh, on the toxic waste But numerous issues about, about um, nuclear power that are coming up, including a super fund that suggests we should have it, a book by um, a war bloke who loves a bit of war who says we should have nuclear weapons. Um, there was a Russian submarine that sank, which was nuclear-powered. There's been lots of things. There's still talk about the, to- the, the dump in the in South Australia and of course a couple of weeks ago at in Sydney at um, the, um, the the nuclear place there a couple of work, more workers were hit with what was regarded as way over the dose they should have got of uh, radiation Uh-oh. so wow. at, nu- at uh, Thingo Heights what's it called Thingo Heights he'll tell us we all know we've got listeners screaming out what the name is text us in if you know <laughs> uh, we'll, that's alright we'll, we'll, we'll come upon it just my stupid mind um, and we are by the way um, Meg Kimber who just said that hello Meg morning and we've got Eugenia Zubchenko over there hello. I'm Kevin Healy and it is City Limits so there we are um, just a couple of other things though um, being NADOC week I thought I'd mention an article in the um, in the Saturday paper a week or so ago um, about the Northern Territory, and uh, yet I won't even go into it particularly, but it's just another, yet another article about, and just an extract from it, Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory are subject to extraordinary levels of arrest and surveillance by police. I think we know all about it. But uh, yeah. it leads us, of course, to our NADOC week broadcast here at 11 o'clock today we'll be, until 3 we'll be doing broadcast from prisons around Victoria and um, mm. w- today I think we've got, I did hear it earlier but I Fulham, Fulham Correctional Centre right, Fulham, yeah. um, and then that's from 11 to 1 and then 1 to 3 is Lond- Loddon Prison in Castlemaine right, mm. yeah Okay, and I'll pour some tea while we're waiting. Have you been listening at all during the week, Kevin? Yeah, they're very good programs. Yep. I mean, they, they, uh, they show just the, the dreadful way our prison system works, the dreadful way it applies to particularly particularly to Indigenous people. We've got a different teapot today and the <laughs> lid just fell off into, <laughs> into what I think is what's about to become my cup, I suspect. <laughs> I'll, I'll give that cup because she loves a cup to Aww. Eugenia. Aww. You get a mug, unfortunately, unless you want the cup it fell into. Um, I don't know what that says. Uh, okay, yep. Okay, you're right. Yep, that's all right. That's it. Um, but I think while we're on um, 
just on on headlines in newspapers. I think the the the, the Financial Review, which of course on satire are called the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, uh, which it is, uh, <laughs> speaking for the people it it, it believes in. Um, its headline last Friday, after they passed the uh, tax cuts for the filthy rich, was Senate delivers tax cut triumph. I mean, it's a triumph wow. according to the Financial Review. If it, if it were a wage increase, it would be a concern and worry for yes. the uh, poor <laughs> yes, bloody indeed. employers. Yeah. Mm. It's not yeah. really impartial, yeah. is it? That's, speaking of which, um, Officeworks has got to find out ways to defray wage costs because it's being forced to pay workers more wages plus plus penalty rates that it hasn't. Of course, Officeworks is part of the, the Coles, et cetera, network, the same mm-hmm. network. And um, and they all, they've recently been hit with, uh, with additional costs because they've been forced to pay... pay um, penalty rates that they weren't paying before and night penalty rates, etc., to workers. And this has been done by the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union and Josh Cullinan. And uh, unfortunately, of course, the union they always belong to, the Shop Assistance Union, is the one that draws up the agreements that mean they don't get the penalty rates. Mm. And while we mentioned some weeks ago, while they say, well, they paid a bit extra in, in base pay for not giving them, they now say this will cost them millions. So we can only assume that the difference was they were robbing workers of millions. millions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> unless they can give us some other mathematical conclusion to that <laughs> particular theory. Now we now know why people tend to look really miserable in office works when Mm. you try to go in there and do Mm. anything. But good news, good news, good news. Culture and Global Affairs magazine Monocle has rated Melbourne 11th in its annual 25 top places to live, down from 9th in 2018. We've dropped. Wow, we're dropping oh, dramatically. But the headline yeah. said we've got a top city to live in, where we've gone down. This is Who's ha- above us? Who do we Herald have to take Sun. out to win? <laughs> <laughs> um, the S- Zurich in Switzerland topped the rankings ahead of Tokyo, Munich and Copenhagen. Sydney was 13th, Brisbane 23rd. But last year we lost our world's most livable city. But these, of course, are all all determined by uh, economic factors rather than uh, living, yeah. real living factors. Well, I was going to say, uh, yeah. who's been to Zurich? Very, boor- <laughs> very boring place. I don't mean to be rude about Zurich. But... And don't they right. all have, like, um, uh, basements and weapons stockpiles <laughs> in them to defend themselves against a possible attack? I don't know if that's the kind of place that I'd want to live. Oh, that's <laughs> no, a well, uh, Switzerland thing. <laughs> I think they've yeah. had some kind of situation there with yeah def- defense. It's like the idea of a citizen army; like everyone yeah. has to be ready to defend and they the country. Have all these tunnels under the mountains and things. I don't know. Yeah, that's for cars and things and trains. But never mind. Um, <laughs> the, we scored high marks. You know, we pleased to know we scored high marks for shopping, mar- markets, food, and. Eugenia, you'll be pleased to hear this, architecture. But lost credit for grappling with population growth, house prices and the need for more reliable public transport to urban fringes. That's not bad. Pretty important stuff. (laughs) Better roads and safer city bike lanes would go a long way. Oh, my gosh. I wonder if this is going to be the thing that finally makes some change happen, else losing our precious livable city status. The roads bit. (laughs) Melbourne has one of the highest concentrations of coffee roaster per capita in the world. That does not surprise me. That's critical to a living, yeah. Um, So I had once once upon a time that they calculated these livability statistics using only data from the actual city of Melbourne, so only the very inner urban areas, which explains why this whole time that things have been so bad in the outer suburbs. We've yeah. still maintained this number one livable city in the world 
status. Well, that's interesting because where do you you yeah, yeah where do you decide? I mean, the boundaries. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, you've disillusioned me there. <laughs> well, Kevin, you'll have to move um, to Zurich. That's right. Yeah, that's right. yeah, I'll off to that. <laughs> Wonder where Dave's going. He's heading for the airport. Yeah. Um, and you'll be pleased to know, mob called Parkmore Fruit and Veg Market in Melbourne Marketplace. So they have they have um, they have businesses in uh, Fountain Gate, Parkmore, and Dandenong, um, and Churnside Park. And they were fined almost 250 grand for paying workers as little as $10 an hour and requiring them to clock up 75 hours a week. A worker at Churnside Park was paid just 10 an hour in cash for the 130 hours a fortnight he worked. Um, Another worker, first employed at 16, was paid 10 an hour. A third person who worked at Florist, run by company at Fountain Gate Park, was also underpaid. Um, and they were fined. The federal circuit court ordered it to pay two hundred grand in penalties, and director Stephen Fanus to pay another thirty thousand after he was found to have been involved in most of the company's legal shortcomings. <laughs> Operations <laughs> manager Ethar Luli was stung with a thirteen thousand fine for his involvement in record keeping and payslip breaches because they were rorting the books as well. They were coming up with books that looked like they were paying workers at oh, the right wow. rate. Right. Um, and Judge John O'Sullivan said the conduct of managers was serious and the production of false or misleading records was the gravest of the offences. Although I suppose the workers that got paid, back paid for their money would think that wasn't so bad, that they, mm. uh, that was probably the best part of it. Mm. $250,000, is that, that's what they got fined. That's how much we have been trying to raise at Radiothon. That's right. <laughs> there you go. Yes, that for a segue. Well, well, get, so if you haven't paid your pledge. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> we could set up a court here. <laughs> now, of course, this, this thing going on about the US, uh, the UK, the United Kingdom, um, ambassador to the United States saying Trump was dysfunctional and clumsy and inept, etc. And Trump's been sending out all these tweets ever since with his usual uh, usual uh, degree of decorum. And um, But but the blokes, I found it interesting because the blokes said, um, look, he's dysfunctional, clumsy and inept and he's not going to change. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a United, and a, and a British, uh, English um, parliamentary spokesperson said, look, that's his point of view, but we don't agree with that. And I thought, well, they must think maybe he will change and stop being inept yeah. and dysfunctional, whatever. Yeah. But on the basis of that, on the basis of his general uh, performance, you'll be pleased to know Andrew Bolt, and this is serious. I mean, Andrew Bolt seriously says, give the Nobel Prize to Trump. Oh, I, wow. didn't, I didn't bother to read on. Wow. Oh, there's this beautiful Photoshop, um, Photoshop job of uh, oh Trump speaking from the White House holding a giant oversized Nobel Prize. That's oh, is right. that yes, is that yes. Photoshop or is he... Oh, it's digitally done. Yeah, yeah, it has to be Photoshop. Oh, my God. But there you are. Okay, look, that's it. We'll take a break. Get Helen Vandenberg on the line and talk some sense. Don't panic. There is a Planet B. Come along to a sparkling night of progressive comedy at Greenleft Weekly's annual comedy debate. Join Masters of Ceremonies, Rod Quantock with Sean Bedlam, Duff, Fiona Scott-Norman, Hellchild, Kirsty Mack... Tom Tanuki. Tickets are $50 Solidarity, $30 Regular, $22 Low Waged and $12 Concession. There'll be a bar and the opportunity to buy a delicious dinner. Friday the 26th of July, 6.30pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. 
don't panic. There is a Planet B, a fundraiser for the radical newspaper Green Left Weekly. Bookings are essential. Phone 9639 8622 or go to trybooking.com/bdhtx. Green Left Weekly is a 3CR supporter. What's up, listeners? This is Johnny Mac here. Just reminding everybody to tune in to 3CR at 11am each day from Monday, July the 8th to Friday, July the 12th for our special Beyond the Bars broadcast during NADOC. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. So make sure to listen in and support our brothers and sisters until they're home again. Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions. And look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. Okay, and Helen Vandenberg on the line. And what may be the line might be a wonky line, but we'll see how we go, Helen. Um, I was talking before the break about the fact that um, the toxic waste dump at Tullamarine's been there for years. There's been a community campaign going on for years. Nothing seems to have moved very far. Uh, finally, a, a group's been formed to take on toxic waste and in the western, northwestern suburbs generally. Um, tell us about that. Well, you know, there's been a series of fires and uh, the, the only ones that you get to hear about are the very large ones, but there are also a series of smaller fires that happened at SKM before anybody was taking much notice. Um, and it seems to be the Stony Creek the death of Stony Creek and then the Bradbury fire, which has finally brought this to a head. Um, and, of course, in different fires, if the plume goes up, you consider yourself lucky. Um, however, sometimes the plume stays down, uh, as it did for a while over at the SKM fire in Coolaroo. Um, and this, of course, um, is deeply concerning because smoke's not good for you at any time uh, in the, part, the very fine particles that are uh, only 2.5 go straight into your bloodstream. So anything with them 
if there's toxic chemicals with it, it's going with it, isn't it? And into your lungs. There's deep concern about um, a community's right to air, the to clean air. Now, government spends a lot of money making sure we get clean water. Why isn't there the same effort to protect the clean air? Now, the Auditor-General uh, has spoken out and so has the uh, Commissioner for Environmental Sustainability and said that the EPA's current air quality monitoring... Um, well, they put it pretty tactfully, but according to us, we've always said it was a waste of time because it mo it doesn't even include some of the um, hotspot areas that we know of as a community. And so they've said that you can't draw any... that the EPA's claim that we're getting clean air can't be substantiated with um, sufficient evidence. So therefore, um, we were right yet again. Um, now, what is of deep concern to us is the need for having um, monitoring of the health of the people who are exposed in these fires. Now, we know that in the Yalorn 45-day uh, fire, that eventually through um, the community advocacy and the work of the Environmental Justice Australia, the, the report was, uh, the coroner's report was resumed and they found out there was a, uh, there were a number of premature deaths due to that long exposure to smoke. The concern of the community here is what has this done to our vulnerable people, particularly our children? Now, if we breathe 16 million times in a year as an adult, what the, how many times does a kid breathe or a baby? How vulnerable were pregnant women? How vulnerable were the elderly? And what is going to be the long-term impacts from this exposure? You still there? Yep. <laughs> and, um, so the community got fed up and called a meeting and... Uh, all, there's 31 groups involved in this. Um, got a clear platform. We will advocate to government. We will uh, keep asking questions till we get answers. And not only do we want our creeks better protected, but we want community health better protected equally. Um, some people might like to put that the other way around. I reckon if you're messed with air and water, you've messed with life itself. So you should just put the two of them on the same page. So... Um, as a consequence of that, the submission was put into the um, inquiry into hazardous waste. Um, Friends of Steel Creek and Triple T Dag wrote pretty short submissions. We kind of sick of this. Um, the uh, Alliance, however, put in a very substantial one. And the uh, interesting thing about that submission has been the inclusion of children's artwork. And when you look at the kids' drawings, you can see what a horrible experience it was for them. Wow. So it is not only the, um, you know, the parents have got anxiety about their, you know, what could be long-term health impacts, you know, how long was the exposure, what were we exposed to, and we know from our long fight at Tullamarine, nobody can ever tell you what the consequence of a cocktail is. So if you look at the health around Tullamarine, you can work it out, mm -hmm. um, and it ain't good. So, uh, yeah, so the community's just said, no, united together, we are going to make a stand and we want greater control over hazardous waste I mean, the other thing is we've had the reform of the EPA. The new EPA Act comes out, so next year it comes into force. But if the government, so far they have doubled the resources of the EPA, but starting to get extra officers to write the Act, there's been no increase in the enforcement capability of EPA, right? Now, if you don't have... I mean, you wouldn't have half a dozen policemen for the state of Victoria. We know it takes thousands. And it is the same here. If you don't have a sufficient enforcement force to 
make the act stick, the whole thing's just for show. Mm. And we're not going to wear that. We want proper regulation and we want enforcement. Um, so, yeah, it's just now that there's a bigger mob of us and we kind of welcome that because we felt a bit alone um, for the past, what is it, 16 years since we restarted the campaign at Tulla. So it's good to have company. It's terrible that it's taken um, this uh, allegedly criminal activity to bring the matter to a head, but, mm. yeah, let's hope we get somewhere concrete out of it. I mean, we're always hoping and we're always trying and you only see very slow progress, but I hope this makes a difference. Mm. Um, you said that the health consequences have never been properly confirmed by any of the agencies that deal with this. Do you think that they actually don't know or that they don't want to say? Uh, they have never made any serious effort to establish what the current science is. Right. Yeah. And and that is a betrayal, mm. that dereliction of duty. Mm. Lazy. But, Helen, if they're now saying that the EPA, the, 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 when we've been saying it for year, years around roads as well, mm. you can't rely on the figures they give you, does it mean the government might be taking it more seriously or not? I find the Andrews government hard to read on the environment. They're very good with grand statements. We have our waterways of the west that looks like it's chugging along. I haven't seen a great deal change out on the Yarra as a consequence of the Yarra Act. Um, $216 million for the environment in the last budget? Hmm. Got to question whether they've got any green credentials or any sincerity. Listen, you, they take their responsibility on clean water seriously. They better take it on air because we breathe all the time. Now, some, most of them might live out where they think it's nice and leafy green. That's <laughs> no facts to prove that. One of the positive things is that the, uh, the, the with Melbourne's normal um, normal air conditions, most of the pollution ends up over Brighton late in the afternoon, which is sort of promising. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> yes, sometimes we can say, oh, well, you know, live with it. We struggle with it. But a lot of the time, I mean, just go down to Altona and have a look what it's like down there with all that petrochemical industry there, right? Mm. Um, you know, where's been the study for what is the cancer rate down there? I know people who live down that way and they say the cancer rate's more horrific than it is around Tullamarine. Nobody's ever bothered to watch it or hmm. any data. I mean... No, it's seen as a kind of a byproduct of capitalism, really. I'm not, I'm not, maybe not explicitly, but people are, you know, there's, that's the logic of capitalism, isn't it? That the idea is well, for I've companies to make profit. Well, i don't think you have, no. <laughs> oh, we, We're not really that, here either. You've kept that pretty quiet over the years. Here, I'm standing here and I can look back to generations of my, men in my family who wanted to work and found it hard to get uh, continuous work. Mm. It has never worked for the small people and it has never worked for the environment. It is time we got to a cooperative basis in society. We are facing a huge crisis with climate change. Mm. We are facing a mental health crisis. We are facing a, a loss of um, respect and for our institutions. We have so many problems on our plate at the moment. It's time we all sat down and 
dropped the barriers and dropped the slogans and just said, okay, this is the situation. How do we work together? And I'm so sick of this opposition and parliament. Mm. Where's collaboration? Mm. Is it okay, um, why would you ever consider that one person or one side knows it all? Why wouldn't you listen to one another? It's hopeful that the trades hall is now um, has a representative to address climate change, right? It's one of our regulars. Yeah, Colin Long. Yeah. Yeah, so, well, I mean, the trades union, um, yes, I won't start on that. Well, I think Kevin has a question that come, brings well, us back to... <laughs> I have a very strong union background mm. and to say that I am disappointed with... Um, how they handle the crisis in environmental issues, how some parts of them put their uh, death of the forest ahead of maintaining the forest. Just mm, I understand. Yeah. But yep. for the days of Jack Mundy and the Green Bands, etc. Oh, yeah, was... well, they were real unionists. Yeah. And um, I mean, <clears> when we were fighting the Nidri Quarry, they put a black band on it. But, you know, they can't do that now because legally they'd finish up mm, being persecuted yes. for it. So, yes. I mean, this... The, the, the hard right has won a lot of victories in the last 30 years and it's time we just sat there and stood there and fought back. One slight positive seems to be that apparently Melbourne Water's got a new high-tech system for de- detecting very quickly where pollution's coming from into the waterways. Did you see that? Oh, um, yes, and I'm following it um, and we'll be asking lots of questions about it and seeing it when it comes out our way. Yeah, it's been tested on the other side of Melbourne so far, but um, they say they're going to spread it all over the place. That would be at least a benefit, although it doesn't stop the fact that the pollution's occurring, of course. No, but diffuse diffuse pollution's been a nightmare because under the old Act, you had to find the source. Now, if you've got pollution, you've got to... I mean, once the new law comes in, once you've got pollution, you've got a problem. Um, And uh, Melbourne Water did try many years ago to put some sample pots down into Steel Creek. The drains are going to Steel Creek trying to find out who was doing what to our creek. Uh, Unfortunately, they didn't ever get it right and they got washed away in every big um, storm. So we never got any data out of it. So, I mean, Melbourne Water has a huge responsibility Mm. um, to keep the waterways healthy. Now... um, and what annoys me is we pay $100 every year on our rate for waterways and parks, right? Yet the government seems to think it's okay for them to take a dividend and um, and uh, a land tax out of that money, and we don't always get it. I mean, we haven't got the whole $100, which is about $200 million a year now, mm. for a long time. I can't. We, we never even got it all. And, you know, I think if you take... The government take can say, you know, that's asset improvement. How can they say it's asset improvement when the health of the waterways is going backwards? So, you know, I'm not very impressed with that process. As I said, um, governments like to get their hands on things, but that, that money is supposed to be for Melbourne Water alone. And the other thing Melbourne Water had to do is they had to spend $19 million on Stony Creek cleanup just out of the blue. Mm. And, you know, Delp will pay him back sometime this year, uh, according to the questions that I've asked. I mean, they had to spend it up front right now. So how does that impact their capacity to work? Mm. You know, and all these things uh, don't come out in the open enough. You mentioned new laws, Helen. What What are they? Oh, that's the new EPA Act that comes oh. in. 
on the 1st of July next year where you have a general environmental duty of care. So if you're pollution, if, you, if you've got pollution, you've got a problem, you're in the wrong, right? Ah, okay. And the, the other thing is there'll be bigger fines um, and uh, jail terms, I think, for some things. Um, mm. And a year after the Act comes in, the community rights come in, which means that when we believe EPA is not doing its job properly, we will be able to go to the magistrate's court and argue our case, and then EPA will have to act. Wow, that sounds yeah. pretty good. Yeah, well, that was pretty hard fought for during that long series of forums and agitations that's been going on for years. We've been saying, where's our community rights? I mean, recently there was an issue of um, uh, land development being planned to go into an area where there's a public acquisition overlay so you can create a path so people can walk along the river at Ascot Vale. Now, historically, British colony when you got your title to your farmland, it took you to the middle of the waterway. Uh, then the colony of Victoria says, no, too many fights over water. We're going to bring you back from the middle of the river to the edge of to the riverbank, and from now on nobody can build within 25 metres of the waterway. Mm. However, these people had old titles, so they were down to the river. Now, when I got there and wanted to speak up about the public acquisition overlay should be respected, I was told I had no third-party rights. Oh. At VCAT. Oh. But there were other things that I could say, so it didn't matter. And Melbourne Water had gone into bat strong and hard on it. And Mooney Valley's now got up and decided that they'll get an assessment report and compensate these people and work out how much land they need to take. So, And I think it's been a bit unfair that the city of Essendon never did it back when it was originally put in. But anyhow, it's happening now. So community rights is vital. When it comes to this, I mean, imagine if we had community rights now, what we could mm. be doing in the magistrate's court to say, well, we don't think the monitoring that we got was fair income and we don't think it was uh, continued long enough and uh, we believe the health of the people should be monitored. I don't know how it's all going to work out. But at least we have another avenue to hold the EPA accountable for yeah. when they fail to do what they should be supposed to do. Helen, and we've I'm, got to go... This a lot, lack of... Um, sincerity in the EPA, I think it comes down to how much the government actually gives them yeah. to employ enough people. Helen, we've got to go, but just briefly before we go, and, and we'll get back to this one with you in it shortly, um, I noticed that Max Beck and Lindsay Fox, who own Essendon Airport, um, <laughs> have a plan to narrow the runway so they can put more buildings on the place. Um, is this a good safety measure? Uh, oh, that's a pretty probing question, but do your best. Look, I have always thought that Lindsay Fox would love to close that airport. Now, if he makes it too dangerous for people to want to come in, he didn't close it, did he? Right. Okay, that's the answer. Be able to afford to... Just purely speculative. If you put all your buildings over it, who's going to pay you out? They're just going to let you sit there, aren't they? And, of course, the things that should be cleaned up in that place are not being cleaned up. There's an old landfill site. There are very... Um, uh, fuel tanks and everything, but I'll better let you go today right. because the uranium mining is something I've been passionate about since I was uh, twenty. That's another. That's another day, Helen. We'll get on to it. Okay. Well, your phone hung in anyway. That was good. Um, but thanks for your time, Helen, and keep You're going. Welcome. Thanks, Helen. Thank you. Bye. Right. 
Helen Vandenberg, who should have been producer at the start. She's a well, back, well, back producer. She's a long-term activist in that part of the world, a long-time campaigner around toxic waste and the Essendon Airport issue and all sorts of things. Anything happening in the north where she's there. She is. Um, she knows everything. Yep. Okay. And someone else who's been active for a long time, Dave Sweeney. After this break, we'll talk to Dave. It's not too late to donate. It's not too late to donate. It's not too late to donate to 3CR Radiothon 94198377 or check our website 3cr.org.au. CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. OK, Dave Sweeney, of course, is the anti-nuclear campaigner with, uh, with not for Friends of the Earth, with uh, Australian Conservation Foundation. And um, he's sitting in a cab being being chauffeured to the airport at this very moment. But, um, Dave, um, uranium, uh, you mentioned to me this morning about the fact that uh, Olympic Dam in South Australia wants to expand even further. That's it. Hello. Hello, Kevin? Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. The Olympic Dam project is uh, owned by uh, BHP, the world's largest miner. It's a massive mine, um, part of which is uranium and it is in northern South Australia, and they've just put in an application to expand the mine. So obviously that has really significant impacts. But uh, um, apart from the fact that it's, uh, it's uranium and all the risk that that means both on site and also when that material is exported and used in nuclear reactors and becomes radioactive waste, mm. what there is also a massive concern about, uh, Kevin and Meg, is that the... Um, is the water usage. This is the driest state in Australia, which is the driest continent on Earth. Mm. And um, they want to use, they want to get a licence to use, without charge, 50 million litres, five zero million litres of water every day uh, from now till 2050. Um, so it's profoundly, um, profoundly disturbing, very significant impacts. And um, obviously we're calling that there be the highest level of uh, scrutiny and the highest level of assessment because lately what we've seen with um, uranium mining proposals is that they're being rubber stamped and rushed through. Mm, but there's an ideological um, bent towards uranium at the moment. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, a, there's this real, um, uh, these concerns are overstated. Um, you know, uh, it's the domain of uh, red, green and black tape and let's get on with the job. There's this real bullish sense of um, of approval and fast-tracking. We saw it with the announcement, you know, of uh, the O'Leary project in Western Australia the day before the election was uh, called, um, despite clear advice from expert federal and state authorities that that mine proposal will lead to extinction. Um, it just was the, the minister, the then minister, who's not the minister anymore, 
mm. um, just rushed it through even though she gave a clear commitment that she would not. Um, even while there's uh, existing court processes challenging the validity of an earlier state approval. So mm. it's a complicated sort of detail, but it's a simple story. This stuff is really serious. We've got the most of it of anyone in the world, and it's being treated as if it's a joke. Our uranium fueled Fukushima, it's radioactive rocks from our country is Fukushima fallout and it needs to be treated seriously in the highest amount of scrutiny not just rushed through as if it's part of some ideological game. We've recently also had a um, a, a, a um, super fund an industry super fund um, figure put out a report saying we should seriously look at nuclear power in Australia and of course we've got Hugh White who doesn't mind a bit of war writing a book saying Australia should now develop its own nuclear weapons or at least consider it uh, so um, when we thought maybe people were waking up and uranium's going away, it's, it's still around, as Meek said. Yeah, that's right. It's, um, it's a little bit like Voldemort's, um, you know, <laughs> regrouping the Death Eaters after the election. You know, all these ideas that would not have get, got any oxygen now are being seriously put forward. There's an idea of um, that uh, we should have domestic nuclear power. Now, we see that as just nukesbrook. This is a government that has refused to have an effective climate or energy policy and one way to cover that up is to say well if we had nuclear power all would be fine it's been extraordinary um but there's that push the new south wales nationals just recently um they made a, a um a decision a formal decision to support nuclear power for australia uh there's those the, the there's a bunch of uh nationals from um north queensland who are pushing for um all sorts of um uh, you know, for the federal government to have an inquiry on um, nuclear power. Mm. And so that sort of stuff's happening. And that, that's very much uh, what you said before, Kevin, about the Australian super. There's, um, there's been a... Um, there's been... Uh, sorry. There's been a, a call from Australian super to... Um, there's been a call from Australian Super to reconsider their investment screen on nuclear power. And so, um, mm. you know, that's a really significant issue. I'm actually talking um, today um, with, uh, with uh, ETU, the Electrical Trade Union, who have come out really strongly, and they've got their national conference. I'm, I'm speaking at that um, on a panel with people from the, the Mineral Council and... Um, what we're, um, you know, they'll be discussing this whole issue of nuclear power and also what it means for their workers and for mm. people in any sector. So they've got a really strong position against. Hopefully they'll continue to maintain and, and strengthen that position. And They, um, they came out strongly immediately after that report from the um, Australian Super uh, as did the CFMEU, or WMEU these days. Uh, but the AWU then came out and said, no, they support it, we should look at it seriously because it creates jobs and uh, is good for the economy, etc. Is that a reasonable argument? Uh, absolutely not. Like Nuclear power is high cost, high risk. It takes years to build. It's always it's characterised by cost overruns and massive complexity. Um, the, the cost curve of renewables is absolutely cruelling nuclear power. Mm. If it was just a market decision, we wouldn't be having this conversation, but we come back to what we spoke about with the fast-tracking for uranium. It's ideological. It's locked into a sort of 1950s, this is the way that we can, um, you know, advance and this is the way that we can have a techno fix for every solution. It's clearly impractical. 
It's clearly unpopular. It's clearly uneconomic. And in any metric, it's being absolutely put into the shade, literally, by renewables. But if you look at what's going on and the call now, and you, you mentioned Hugh White before, and this obscene and absurd call that Australian security would be better enhanced by, um, by uh, adopting nuclear weapons, like to have in 2019 with the technology that we have, with the capacity we have, with the complicated and, and uncertain world, to be saying that our best bet for energy is nuclear power and our best bet for security and safety is nuclear weapons is quite absurd. And again, I come back to, I say, I couldn't imagine this happening in if the election result had been different. Mm. And what we have is, a, is an allowing and even to some degree a flowering of ideas that are really... Um, repugnant and completely ineffective, the absolute wrong approach. Do you think part of the... Are you there, Dave? I am, yes. Um, do you think part of the ideology of it is related to the fact that Australia has one of the highest amounts of uranium on Australian land and this kind of capitalist idea that if you just have a resource and you can get enough of it, then you're going to kind of win capitalism. Do you know what I mean? Sorry, can you try that one, Meg, <laughs> do, one more time? Do you think that it's... Um, that, does Australia have some of the highest le- like amounts of uranium here and this is this a kind of the ideology is that straightforward kind of capitalism 101. If you can get out enough of something that's, that people want to pay for, then you can benefit financially no matter what the cost. Yeah, absolutely. And and the weird part about this, though, is that um, the odd part about it is that it actually isn't um, that cost competitive. It's not that effective. The uranium price post Fukushima has been smashed. Right. It's, it's measured in US dollars per pound. It used to be $120 a pound. Now it's 20 It's wow. absolutely been smashed. And uranium mines, operating mines, are being closed, mothballed overseas and in Australia. Mm. And so there is a, a slavish ideological thing. It's, if it was just market economics, you could actually um, uh, nearly pack it up with mm. the nuclear industry. We'd just be talking about how do we manage the waste, and that's a big question. But, <laughs> but we wouldn't be talking about let's open new mines, let's have domestic nuclear power, let's explore nuclear weapons. These are not market economic things. It's failed the market test. It's failed the public licence and social licence test. Mm. It's failed the technology test. And... Um, it's just quite extraordinary that we are in this. Uh, we're in this situation now. Like, yeah, we're not jumping at every shadow. We're not. We're not thinking that nuclear power will get up in Australia. The big end of town just thinks it's absurd. Right. The big end of town just hasn't got any time for it. No one would insure it. There's union after union standing up to say we wouldn't build it and we wouldn't work in it. Like, there's massive impediments here. They're not going to go away. But we we can't ignore this sort of chatter. You can't ignore when you've got significant industries, the Mineral Council of Australia, a whole bunch of, uh, you know, an assortment, a ragtag of right-wing populists, a whole bunch of commentators in the Murdoch press on 2GB and elsewhere, mm. banging the drum loud and hard mm. and saying a very simple, even though it's fundamentally incorrect message, that if we had nuclear power, we wouldn't have to worry about anything. We'd mm. all be OK, climate change be sorted. Now, we know that that's not true, but they say it loud, they don't worry about subtlety. They don't worry about nuance, complexity. They just bang the drum and say, nuclear, great. The weapons will keep us safe. The power will keep us warm. Let's get on with it. So we need to counter that argument so that mm. that doesn't seep in 
and, and start to shape people's uh, feeling or thinking about this issue. We're not jumping at every shadow, but there is absolutely no way that we are going to countenance for a second the idea that nuclear power is a credible solution to the climate and energy challenges we face. It's absolutely not on every criteria. It's a profound intergenerational imposition. Mm. And there is no way that we're going to sit back and let anyone, no matter how many doctorates they have, no matter how sort of talked up it is in the sense of an academic discourse and let's be in for bold ideas, nuclear weapons are weapons of mass and indiscriminate destruction. They are not legitimate security tools. Mm. They are murderers' weapons. And so that is really crossing a line. And this country, I cannot conceive that people in this country would think that we are best served by having nuclear weapons. I know that CR listeners wouldn't. I know you don't. I know that there's hordes of us, but I would like to think that a lot of just pretty, you know, don't think about it much, not too actively engaged. I vote Liberal because I always have style people would just say that is a bridge too far because it absolutely is. And, of course, on, on nuclear weapons, there was a report from the um, Stockholm International Peace Research Institute just a couple of weeks ago saying that the world's nuclear powers have continued to modernise and develop their arsenals amid a slight drop in the number of nuclear warheads. And they say what we are reporting is that the overall number of nuclear weapons is in decline, but all of the nuclear weapon-possessing states are either modernising or have announced plans to modernise their forces. And... Uh, it is clear that nuclear weapons remain a central element in their military strategies, etc., etc., when we would argue they should be trying to dismantle the whole bloody thing, shouldn't they? Well, we are arguing that. We're not only arguing it, we're prosecuting it pretty effectively. Like, we, you know, an initiative born in Melbourne, the ICANN, International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear yeah. Weapons, it, ha- it got up a treaty, a UN treaty, which was two years old last Sunday. Happy birthday to that treaty. <laughs> it's, uh, it's now a treaty and it's halfway to being international law. There's 24 nations that have ratified it now. When 50 do, and there's more coming, the more in the pipeline, when 50 do, it's international humanitarian law. And that gives us a lot of access to courts, gives us a lot of access to capital, to changing money flows, to changing the legitimacy or the delegitimacy of these weapons. But you're absolutely right, Kevin. Like the, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which has got 15 Nobel laureates on its board and was formed by Einstein and crew as a sort of check and balance once they let the genie out of the bottle, they have the doomsday clock, minutes to midnight. It is currently sitting on two minutes to midnight, which is as close as it's ever been in its history. It's as close as it's ever been in the chilliest parts of the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And they say that because of the twin existential threat of unchecked climate change and nuclear weapons. Mm. And they're saying that we're on the, on the cusp of a new generation of, of uh, nuclear breakout and nuclear arms, weapons arms race. We're seeing Russia doing extraordinarily dodgy things, come, trying to come up with new sorts of submersible and also new sorts of... Uh, missile technology. We're seeing a whole range of countries. We're seeing the breakdown. USA walks away from an international agreement and uh, Iran announces that it's enriching uranium beyond, uh, you know, the the agreed threshold level and into a nuclear weapons capable level. You know, these are bad days. There's money being... Trump is basically throwing an open uh, checkbook to the nuclear weapons part of the Department of Defence. Um, you know, they're not good days. So it is absolutely imperative in this context that countries like Australia, you know, seen as middle, reasonable, 
middle powers with a fair degree of influence and some degree of sanity, mm-hmm. it is pivotal that we actually show leadership beyond partisan nonsense, leadership on an existential threat. And we have shown leadership from the Australian people. Mm-hmm. We just need it from the Australian political class. And we're certainly not getting it from Australian academics like Dr Hugh White. That's an obscene and absurd thing, and he should be ashamed. And anyone who's, uh, you know, waving their hands at the idea of nuclear arms um, has completely failed to read Impact 101 because these things are weapons of mass and indiscriminate destruction. Um, And to say that they have a place in the security fabric of, you know, what purports to be and what has, uh, you know, a Western liberal democracy in a time of really grave crisis and threat is us absolutely not just dropping the ball but deflating the ball and poisoning the turf. It's the opposite for what we need to be doing. And, you know, so we're going to work, be it through civil society groups engaged with uranium tracking, working with Aboriginal people and trade unions, or through the push against nuclear power, or through actively arguing and advocating for real action, effective action on nuclear weapons. You know, there's a a full agenda in the coming period. Um, Dave, you said before that uranium doesn't make any sense in any way. I'm just wondering why BHP want to expand the Olympic Dam. Great question, mm. and they wouldn't be if it was just uranium. Okay. I said um, what I, uh, Olympic Dam's beauty for a miner is that it's a mixed ore body, mm. um, and so there's copper, gold, uranium, silver, mm. and it's effectively reasonably market impervious. If the market is down on one thing, mm. um, it's, it's not down on another. And as you'd know, like copper at the moment is um, in demand, mm. particularly with a whole lot of new energy technology and energy efficiency stuff, lots of mobile phones, electric cars, lots of stuff are hungry for copper. And so that is what's driving the, um, that's what's driving the expansion. Right. Dave, just to finish up, because we're running out of time, but um, taking you to the, you mentioned the two things that mainly affected the, uh, the clock, the doomsday clock. Uh, the first of them was climate change. And um, from your body, the Australian Conservation Foundation, last week there was a report came out that said Australia could be responsible for 13% of the world's carbon dioxide emissions by 2030, up from 5% today. And um, this was done by a think tank in Berlin called the Climate Analog- Analytics, which was commissioned by the ACF. Um, and it goes on to point out that... Um, Australia's projected coal and gas exports over the next decade were out of step with the Paris Agreement targets and that if countries meet their targets, demand for Australian fossil fuels could plummet, resulting in stranded assets, etc., etc. But it's a pretty damning report of where Australia's at in, in, in the broad level of environment and climate. It absolutely is. And um, what it is is it shows that Australia is a, is a dirty enabler. Um, we're a fossil fuel facilitator. Um, and what we actually do is, is uh, we extract and export our carbon footprint. We make it possible um, for massive amounts of carbon, but it's not recorded in Australia because it goes out of uh, ships as a mineral product. Um, it's the same with uranium. We see it as a mineral product rather than as a complicated, complex, unhealthy, unnecessary energy issue. So we have this approach here, which comes back to Meg's point about, you know, uh, dollar over Uber Alice and, and the sort of the ideological bent of 
So we, you know, are a country um, that since the early days following invasion has been, you know, if, if when the sheep's back got a bit rough to ride on, we went to minerals. The gold mm. rush sort of set the pace for Australian political and economic thinking and, and development in many ways. And we have been a very heavily mineral dependent uh, nation ever since. So we have a resource economy and we just rip and ship. And we are ripping and shipping dirty energy in the form of uranium and obviously in the form of coal um, at an extraordinary rate and exporting massive problems in the form of long-lived radioactive waste or massive carbon emissions. And LNG, of course, as well. Absolutely. You know, we're we're exporting this LNG that we were then buying it back uh, from companies overseas and reprocessing it for a domestic to use at a domestic stove in Sydney and Melbourne. Mm. The whole situation is extremely skewed but there is massive amounts of money there's and with money comes massive amounts of political influence and connection um so there is a really perverse impact on democratic structures on evidence-based decision making on all those things that are the sort of you know that we value they're boring but they're worthy and they shape a world that makes a bit more sense and isn't just um you know Mm. the latest whoever's pack animal is biggest we are facing really significant institutional barriers in even having a genuine discussion about how we disengage from coal, what happens to those workers, how we transition, how we make sure that on a domestic and international front, Australia moves from being an enabler of dirty energy to a promoter and a, a user and a producer of clean. That's the challenge for the next period in time. How do we move from dirty energy and risk to clean energy and a sustainable future? It's an irony, I suppose, that on Monday when the Financial Review reported that report, a headline on one side of the page, Australia set to emit 13% of all carbon, and the other story on the same page was Mount Piper coal generated to be upgraded. Um, They want to expand it so it can last several more years. So there's a real irony in there somewhere. Yeah, well, there's lots. If you look, there's irony after irony in the whole in the whole thing. And you know, like we're having this conversation about nuclear and risk and responsibility, and and you know the prospect being raised by some of Australia going into nuclear weapons. And it was on this day in 1985 that you know a group of French state terrorists blew up a mm. non-violent ship in nuclear-free yeah. New Zealand. You know, and you just see there's loop after loop of this stuff. And again and again, you see. People in the city being told to have a, you know, a, a two-minute shower while the world's biggest miner is being told, yeah, we're about to give you 50 million litres a day without charge for... How long did you want it for? Mm. 2050? Fine. Yeah. And Adani, you know, like, Adani's got a similar deal, of course. Adani's got a similar deal announced by the same minister just a day before she announced a dodgy extinction-causing <laughs> yeah. deal in WA. <laughs> so you have to really work hard to pull the boots on and keep going. Yeah. But that's really important. That's what's so important, like... CR and that community of interest in, in Australia that isn't just slave to the dollar but is like thinking longer term yeah. and thinking about a whole range of wider impacts, what it means for people, what it means for the planet. Okay, and David, we'll, we'll talk again soon. We've got, we've got to go with time's up, but um, go and tear them apart today and make those industry <laughs> people realise they're, they're all... You, you can, yeah, yeah, just tear them apart, Dave. Tear I, them actually, apart. I, I actually am in a mood to do so. so thanks, <laughs> thanks for the warm-up. I really okay. appreciate it. <laughs> all of it. Thanks, thanks Dave. Dave. Okay. Dave Sweeney there, who's the anti-nuclear campaigner with ACF, and... Um, 
He's uh, he's never like Helen Vandenberg. We had two guests today. Yeah. We're never short of a word. Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> but they always, at least, what they say is uh, is very important. Yeah. Okay. Next week's housing, and uh, we've got. Um, have we got the? We haven't got no. Okay. So we've got housing. We'll certainly have housing with Aged Action Group here. And uh, I was just checking whether there's another story floating around. Whether we have it tied up yet, but maybe not. But we'll hopefully. Uh, get one to do with uh, VCAT. Okay. Okay, housing next week. Team, thanks a lot.